0: I want to uh, start, it's my privilege to start a a new series, and we are going to be looking, um, walking through the book of Hebrews. And every time we say a book of Hebrews, really, this is a a letter written to uh, Christians in the first century. And just to give you a little bit of context for the entire, and every time I'll give you a little bit of context for every talk that we do, But it's interesting that the the people that, we don't know who the author was. This is the one book in the Bible, we really have no idea who penned it. Um, But what we do know about is that the people that were the original audience for the the letter to the Hebrews, or the book of Hebrews, um, were people who had understood suffering. There are two two uh, windows of tremendous persecution in the first century AD that we know about. The the, the first one was when um, the Emperor Claudius in, in, in 49 AD, he, he, he basically chased out every Christian out of the city of Rome. He expelled them all. And while he is, is, is cleaning Rome up of Christians, He's persecuting them. He's torturing them. He's doing terrible things to them. But really, Claudius was 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 soft compared to what Nero did in sixty four A D. He unleashed such a there was such a bloodlust in in the, in the in the Roman leadership, and and it was all targeted towards the Christians. And so they were torturing and persecuting Christians and making sport of it uh, the entire time. And so the, this a group of people to whom Hebrews is written have experienced already the persecution that took place in 49 AD, and he is preparing them because they're about to experience what we know is coming in just a few years in 64 AD. So he's preparing them, and he's saying, listen, some of you are gonna die. Some of you are being killed, even tortured, even now. And many of you will not live very long because of what's coming. And so this letter is written to encourage them. Um, Hebrews chapter one, I'm going to read four verses. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. He's telling us here that Jesus is so high, he is so astounding, He's so powerful that, that 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 he is holding the universe. Again, this is beyond our ability to comprehend. He's holding it all together with his word. And I love this phrase. Jesus, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Now, I'm a little bit of a simpleton. I, I really need pictures to understand complicated concepts. And as I was reading, I got stuck on this verse. He is the radiance of God's glory. What does God's glory look like? I need a picture of that so I can actually understand what this verse is talking about. Do you remember when uh, several million Jews were being released out of captivity in Egypt and Moses is leading them out? And very early on in the journey, God comes to the people and he gives them his glory. Glory. And at night, it looks like a pillar of fire, and at day, it looks like a cloud of fire. And it is so powerful. It is so powerful that when an entire Egyptian army comes to try to recapture the the Israelites, they are paralyzed by this thing's power. The Bible tells us that it's at one point in time in the journey, that same pillar or that same cloud of fire rests on top of Mount Sinai. And when it rests on top of Mount Sinai, there is lightning and there is thunder and the mountain itself is shaking. That's, that's power. Anybody who touched the mountain died. And then he call, God calls Moses to come up into the cloud on the mountain And there Moses and God have this conversation. And when Moses comes down from the mountain, he radiates with God's, his face shines so bright that people can't look at him. And so they found a bag and they covered his head in a bag so that people could look at him. It's because they didn't have sunscreen yet at that time because everybody else could have put some sunscreen on and then just talked to him. That same pillar, that same cloud of fire shows up again. Solomon built the temple. And that same pillar of fire comes and it fills the temple. It saturates a space, a piece of real estate. It fills it to the place where anybody that even comes close, they don't have the power to walk. They just collapse. They can't can't stand in the presence of that much glory. See, glory is... God in a form that we can see. Glory is the visible expression of an infinite, overwhelmingly, shatteringly, beautiful, brilliant God. It's a picture of God's awesomeness, his strength and his power and his wisdom. And the Bible says Jesus is the radiance of that glory. He is God in a form that we could see. He's God in a form that we could touch. He's God in a form that we could hear. I mean, you you, you can't even look at the natural sun with your natural eyes for any length of time without frying them. You think you could look at God's holiness, his radiance? And so he gives us Jesus. The Hebrew word for glory, by the way, means weighty, or weight. It means permanent versus fleeting. It means um, uh, important versus unimportant. It means real versus unreal. Because really, God is only, only God, in the big picture, only God is real. Only God is permanent, and only God matters. Think about this. If you were to take your own Sherman tank drive it onto the bridge and then turn right and drive the tank off the bridge into the water, into Lake Okanagan. The lake would give way to the tank, right? The tank would sink right to the bottom and the lake would make room, it would give way, it would would quake because the tank has more weight, it has more glory than the water. If you were to take a huge rock that's that's heavier than the ice and you drop it on the ice, the ice gives way because the rock has more glory, more weight. And the reality of God comes into a person's life. I promise you this, your life gives way. It gives way because he has way more glory, way more weightiness than you. You know what, and, and it's, it's amazing to me how when, when people experience God, when they profoundly experience him, the conversation changes significantly. There's a difference between God as a concept and experiencing God, just like there's a difference between believing God and experiencing God. See, we can intellectually talk about religion, and God and belief and it does nothing to change us. We, we, we've just it's chewing gum for the mind. But when the reality of God comes into a person's life, I promise you everything changes. Everything gets reengineered. All the furniture gets rearranged. Everything gets moved around inside of you. And you wanna know why? Because of glory. Because of God's glory. See, God as a concept is actually considerably lighter than you are. The idea of God, just God is out there. It's something let's talk about. You bring God as a concept into your life and you shape it around your life. You shape it around your, your existing patterns. You shape it around your own belief systems. But think about this. Most of what we believe really comes out of our cultural moment. Most of the, 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 the backdrop, the context for what we believe, it comes from our cultural moment. Think about what you believe, and how uh, in this century how what you believe is really shaped what you understand. And the cultural moment seems like it has so much weight, so much weightiness. That when your personal experience, when scripture contradicts your personal experience, if God is just a concept, you know what you do? You pick that verse and say, I like that one, but I don't like that one. And that's, that's, that's God's word right there, but not that. I think that's wrong. I'm not going to do that. But when God is a reality comes into your life, it's heavier than you. When God comes, He's heavier. He's heavier than your agenda. He's even heavier than your beliefs. By the way, I think we should be always, always open to God's revelation expanding what we believe. I think if you lock on to your little theology, which is narrow and just, it's probably not informed, really broadly informed. I don't know why we're so afraid to to, to, to read about other people's experience of God, other culture's experience of God. I don't know why we're so threatened by that. But I've come to realize this, that when when God comes to us and and we experience the reality of God, um, he comes to transform us, to change us, to give us his radiance. Think about Saul of Tarsus from the New Testament. I mean, the guy was strong. The guy was driven. The guy was successful. The guy had a a mission and a passion. And he encounters Christ. The reality of Christ and everything is changed. All the furniture gets thrown out. Every agenda gets sidelined. Everything completely, and you can't do that to a person as another human being. That takes something that has more weight than you do as a human being. And so I found this out. You know what? When people are seeking God, for instance, when when they're hungering for God, we try to convince them of God. When I say, you know what, to step back from the conversation and invite the person to open themselves, say, God, make yourself real to me. Make yourself real to me. When you experience God, you don't fit him into your life. He is a Sherman tank, and you are the water. And you just get rearranged. And and you get get renovated, seriously renovated. And the thing about renovations is they are always messy before they're clean, right? you, You walk into the middle of a renovation, you go, it's a disaster in here. But he knows what he's going to do. He knows when it's finished, how beautiful it will be. It's the same way with God's word. It has power to transform because it's heavier than your circumstances. It is. It's heavier than your situation right now. It's heavier than your sin. In 2006, my friend Randy was diagnosed with stage three pancreatic cancer. And let me tell you, that was a heavy moment. Randy's an ordinary guy. He's not a super spiritual guy or anything like that. He's sitting there in the doctor's office in absolute shock because the prognosis is terrible. And God breaks into that moment with one verse with seven words. By his wounds, Randy, you have been made healed. By his wounds, you have been healed. And those, 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 those words drop into his heart. And he said, the only way I can explain it, he says, the words were heavier than the death sentence I just received from the doctor. The words had more authority, had more glory. They were weightier than, than, than what my doctor had just told me that they found. Those words were actually heavier than cancer cells multiplying, moving into different organs in his body. Those words were heavier than death itself. They have more glory. And my friend, he he just wrapped his little faith around those seven words. And he said, God, I believe, forgive my unbelief. He lives in Hawaii today. He's healthy, he's whole. Because God's words are heavier than your cultural moment. So what's the point? What's the point of this glory? What's the point of all of this? What, what point is it that, that we know that, that Christ is the radiance of God's glory? Well, it's this, that just like God invited Moses to come up into his glory, and they, they commune there, they talk there, in Christ, God invites us into his glory. He, he, his, his glory is there, not so that we're terrified by it, but so that we're transformed by it. His glory is, is really, I think, what, what, what Paul was talking about in essence when he said that um, the God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. That's his glory. That was Ephesians 1:3. Ephesians 1:18 says this: uh, "I pray that the eyes of your understanding, being enlightened, that you may know the hope of His calling, And what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The riches of the glory of his inheritance. Is it entirely possible that, that the glory of God is our inheritance? It's what we get to live in and walk in for all eternity. It's what God has made available to us through Christ. To step into that kind of power to restore you, to renew you, to transform you into his image. Do you remember, do you remember when, when, when you first experienced the power of God and the presence of God in your life? Do you remember, remember how it just rocked your world? Remember how you talked funny after that? I don't even go to Tim Hortons with people that just got saved anymore because they are just so weird. I, I, I literally don't. If we want to meet, we'll meet in my office because they, they want to go pray for everything. They want to tell everybody, but they're weird. They're just, I, I said, sit down and stop. It's, it's like they're in love and they want to point everybody to the person they're in love with. And they're just embarrassing. But you, you remember how real that was. Not so much anymore, right? For some of us, you know, God was everything, and now He's just something. How did that happen? How did how did He get so diminished in our lives? I think there's a lot of reasons. One of them is that we're spiritually ADHD. We, but He was everything because you, you you always. I'll say this again, but whatever has the power to hold your focus has the power to dominate your life. And whatever you, you always see what you're looking for. And when you're looking for Christ, you see him in everything. You see him in every verse. You see him in every song. You can can find Jesus in a country song, no matter whether it's who sang it or why they're singing it. But we, 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 we just lost our focus. We took our eyes off of him. And 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 you 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 have a tough season and you lose your focus cuz you're curled on your pain but then you have a great season and you lose your focus cuz you're curled on your blessings and then you're boring you have a terribly boring season a flat season and you lose your focus we lose our focus in every season I wonder if that's why the writer of Hebrews said this, he knew that we're wired this way. Hebrews 12, two, he says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and every sin that so easily entangles. And he said, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. I'm going to invite um, Cheryl to come on up with the band. You see, where you pitch your tent really does matter. Where you pitch your tent matters. Do you remember um, in the book of Genesis, God speaks to Abraham. And he says to Abraham, I, I want you to leave your, where you live right now. I want you to leave your family. I want you to leave your father's house. I want you to leave all your relatives and I, I'm, I'm, you don't know where it is, but I'm going to take you. I'm going to lead you to a land. And I'm going to bless you in that place. And he tells him a whole bunch of other things. And then he says, I'm going to make you a blessing. The whole world will be blessed because of you. And so Abraham takes one person from his family. He takes Lot. And um, And they leave. And by the time they get to this place that God has been leading them, the Bible tells us that Abraham and Lot are so wealthy. They are so rich in camels and cows and sheep and goats and servants. They are so wealthy that they, 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 they can't even the land is too small for them to be together and because their, their herdsmen are fighting and they're quarreling over wells and grazing grounds and things like that. And so they decide they're gonna split up. And Abraham says, listen, I'll tell you what, if you go right, I'll go left. If you go left, I'll go right. Well, Let's just, let's just leave in peace, okay? Let's be cool with each other. And so they, they part ways. And this is really, really cool because the Bible says in Genesis thirteen eighteen that Abraham goes and he sets up camp, and it makes this comment. It says, and Abraham pitched his tent towards the altar of the Lord. See, the altar was probably just a stone cairn, but whenever God would impress something on Abraham, he would lead him and talk to him. Abraham would build this rock cairn, and he's got hundreds of people that live with him, and and that he employs and looks after. And he would bring this whole tribe together and say, God spoke to me. And this, every time you see this altar, every time you see this rock carrying, I want you to remember that this is what God said to me. And so every time he got up, every morning he got up, he opened his tent, it's right there. Lot, on the other hand, the Bible says, pitched his tent towards the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Sodom and Gomorrah make Vegas look like Sunday school. All right? These are wicked, evil cities. Abraham wakes up in the morning, and he sees the altar, and he draws near to the Lord, and the Lord draws near to him. And Lot wakes up in the morning, and he sees the people of Sodom, and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah draw near to him, and he draws near to them. And because Lot's eyes were on Sodom, his thoughts were on Sodom, and because his thoughts were on Sodom, his desires were on Sodom. And because Abraham's thoughts were on the promises of God, then his heart was on the promise of God, and his desires were on the promise of God. At some point in time, every single one of us has to decide what is our highest joy. Because the thing that delights us is the thing that directs us. It's the thing that has the biggest place in our life. Where you pitch your tent matters. And so if you're in here this morning, and maybe God is still just a concept The only one that can make him a reality in your life is him. And he never comes uninvited. And so open your heart and say, Father, I've never experienced this. Right now, you're just stuck in my head. I've never experienced this. But if you're real, bring it. I'm, I'm all yours. Go ahead. Rearrange the furniture. Do a renovation. Go ahead, go ahead. If you're real, I, I, I'd like to experience that. Number two, take your eyes off your worries. We worry so much. We worry so much. Take, you know what? what? What is that producing in your life? If your thoughts are on worry, it begins to consume you because whatever has the power to hold your focus, Right? Take your eyes off your worry and begin to look at His Word. And what His Word says to you has more weight than what's worrying you. And you make room for Him. And in all of these things, we make room for His glory to become our energy, our life, why we do what we do, why we get out of bed in the morning. Amen? Let me pray for you. Our Father... You know every heart in the, in the room. And you can see the hungry hearts. Lord, I pray that, I pray that just like you came down and shook mountains, that you'd come down and shake lives. That you would be so profoundly real that we, we don't know what to do with you all the time, but we cannot deny that you're there and that you're working in us. And so, Father, we ask you to come. Make yourself real to us. I want to pray for those that are really caught up in worry right now, in angst and anxiety. I pray that you'd even just come and minister peace and rest and calm to, to those who are just so full of worry. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name.